Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Ahoy, hello, welcome. It's coming to the end of another science-stuffed year. We have sent a brand new telescope into space. We sent the very first radio show into space. And we're going to look back on all that this week in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Welcome along. My name's Dan. This is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Every week we come together to search out those science secrets that are lurking through the universe. And we have had a bustling year. This week we will look back on the very best bits of 2022. We'll chat insects, space telescopes, and you can hear from a proper deadly creature expert. Steve Backshaw is on. I think the creatures that live in the ocean, we may think we know them, but we very rarely do. Anything like as much as we may like to think. And you can take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to learn all about what gravity does here on Earth. Check out the sea. What do you think makes the waves move? Um, the wind? No, gravity. And gravity has a hand in our weather too, you know. So stick around, it's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's start this week's show by looking back on something from the very beginning of 2022. You might remember we took on a huge project, Mission Transmission. Us at Fun Kids, the children's radio station, we were going to send the first ever radio show straight into space. And we needed to get ready. We needed to find out how far it might travel, whether any aliens might listen to it. And we also caught up with someone who had done something a little bit similar. John Lomberg came on. He is the artist of the Voyager Golden Record. This was sent up years and years ago. It's a vinyl record, something old school. It's attached to the Voyagers 1 and 2 spacecrafts. And it holds so many sights and sounds from planet Earth. A way of introducing our species, humans to any aliens that might find it one day. It's got music from all over the world, the sounds of people. There were even special photographs loaded onto it too. And John joined us way back in January to talk all about the Voyager Golden Record. Mission transmission. We are sending your messages to the stars, to space. And in the next few weeks, we're getting ideas. We're getting help from all sorts of experts. Today, it's from someone who has pretty much been there and done it. John Lomberg is an artist. He was involved in the creation of Voyager Golden Records, a Curiosity Sundial as well. He joins us today from Hawaii. John, thank you for being there. My pleasure, Dan. Now, you've been involved in Voyager Golden Records, the Curiosity Sundial. Without bogging us down with all of this, I mean, we can do this ourselves. Um, what, what, what was the purpose of Voyager Golden Records? How is it trying to explain us as humans on planet Earth, our position in the universe? There was a mission launched in 1977 called Voyager, which had two spacecraft. And their mission was to explore the outer solar system. But 
in the process of doing that, they were going to leave the solar system and never come back. So kind of as an afterthought, somebody said, well, suppose in the distant future, somebody else finds these spacecraft. They're not going to come back to Earth. They're not going to even orbit the sun. They're going to just go out into the galaxy and most likely drift forever between the stars. They probably never crash into anything. Uh, but maybe there are other beings that can travel between the stars and might find either of the spacecraft someday. So in case that happened, uh, NASA let us put together a, uh, a message in the form of a phonograph record, an old-style LP phonograph record that contained uh, music and sounds and pictures recorded in a complicated way, but we think a way aliens could figure out trying to give a picture of what the Earth was like. That wasn't the purpose of the Voyager mission. As I said, it was very much an afterthought. And it was, well, if they do find it and there isn't a message on it, they'd really be annoyed because if we found something like this, what we'd want to know is who made it. So the record is really kind of the, uh, the answer to the question of who made this spacecraft. You said there you, you put together things on a record in a way that you would think aliens can interpret it. Uh, how are you figuring that out? I mean, aliens by definition are something completely different to us. How do we know if they understand binary code and different pulse rates? Talking to aliens is hard because we've never done it. And the few times we've had a chance to try to do it here on Earth, like dolphins or whales, who we're sure communicate in very complicated ways, but we really haven't been able to figure out their communication system. So it's a very good question. Maybe there are aliens, but how could we possibly hope to communicate with them? And I think the answer is that if they're alien dolphins, they'll be as hard to communicate with as our dolphins. But if they're in spacecraft, they have to think like us insofar as building spaceships. And that's hard to do. And as far as we know, it takes science and engineering and mathematics and technology to do it. So whatever they're like, if they're going to be in space and able to find these records, find these Voyager spacecraft, then they're good at technology. They're good at engineering. And I think they're good at figuring out mechanical things and because we've given a, a series of playing instructions on the box that the record is in and we've even supplied the needle just like in an old style lp you needed a needle to play it well we've given them that needle and showed them how you put it on the record the rest is really up to them and uh, we'll never know if they could figure out but starting with the fact that we share science and technology and the same physics that govern our universe, the same physical laws that make things work here, will be the same everywhere. We know they're the same everywhere. So aliens have to learn those same laws that we do. They have to study the same, you know, the same physics that we do. Just lastly on Voyager Golden Records, how on earth did you decide or help to decide what was going to go in the package, the record that you sent up to space. How were you trying to take all of humankind and human culture and put it in a little package that an alien might be interested in? Where did you start with that? You can't describe the earth in a hundred pictures, which is about what we had. 
You can't describe the earth in a thousand pictures, maybe not in a million pictures. But part of the art of it is trying to find those things that really suggest the important things about the earth. And I bet if you ask any of your listeners to make a list of what 10 things would you want to show or what 20 things would you want to show in describing the earth, I bet you'd find that people said the same things. You want to show mountains, you want to show oceans, you want to show animals, you want to show cities. What to show was actually fairly easy to come up with. How to show it was harder. Because you have to remember, you were showing it to something that was intelligent but had never seen anything like it before. They didn't know what they were looking at. So my job was to try to think like an alien. My job was to pretend that I had never been to Earth. Maybe I'd been to other planets. And you start to think, well, what does other what do other planets have that we have? Well, we know from studying the other planets in our solar system that other planets have mountains. So mountains would be very easy for aliens to recognize. They'll probably have seen mountains before. I tried to find pictures of things that would be presented in a way that was easy as possible for an alien to understand as far as I could guess, pretending to be an alien myself. Is it right, does the record, does your part of the work, does it have a, an estimated lifespan of a billion years? So, I mean, something that you've helped to create could be the longest lasting work of human art ever. That's one of the amazing numbers involved with this project. The other number is we had six weeks to put it all together. It was hard. So you've been kind enough to just give us some tips and advice. This February, we are doing our own mission, mission transmission. We are sending our love letter to space. We're not sticking it on the back of a, a, vo- a Voyager that's just going to travel endlessly through the, uh, through the universe. We are doing it. We're beaming it from here on Earth. In your opinion, what do you think would be the best way to communicate who we are here on Earth through sound that aliens might understand. I might need you to pretend to be an alien again, John, if that's okay. What do you think? Well, one of the things that we thought on Voyager was that music is something that there are many reasons for thinking that aliens might have music and might like music. And even that that music might be similar enough to ours that they could understand it and like it. And the main, the main reason for that is that a lot of things about music are based on the physics of how sound works. When a guitar string vibrates, uh, you have these harmonics and overtones, the series of notes that the string makes. That's the same anywhere in the universe, if you vibrate a string. And a lot of our, the way we harmonize and the way we make music is based on things like those intervals from a vibrating string. So music isn't something completely arbitrary, at least human music, acoustic music. And the way we try to pattern the music, that may be unique to us. Will they like our our patterns? They won't understand our lyrics, that's for sure. But I think music is is one way to, to communicate. What's an important message, do you think, to send it to the aliens if we were going to go along the lines of speech if we were going to hope that these aliens are intelligent enough that they can figure out and translate different words from all around the universe from different beings what do you think 
in the year 2022 is an important message to send to these aliens about the state of things now, our place in the universe, with words. The big difference between 1977, when we made the Voyager record, and now is I think most people are now have a much more concerned view of the world and the state of the world and the future. I think that when we made the record, we had a much more positive outlook on how the future was going to be. And that positivity was reflected in the fact that one of the things that we did not show in our message was any of the bad stuff from Earth. No war, no poverty, no disease, no injustice. But beyond that, the idea that in in contacting somebody, think of it like uh, 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 you're looking to meet a friend. You don't start with what's worst about you. You try to lead, you know, put your best foot forward. So the idea was that our greeting, if we were presenting a picture of Earth, let's be positive. Let's present Earth on a good day. And some of the best of what we do, nothing of the worst of what we do. But I think now, if you ask most people, I would think that a message about Earth that didn't mention our big problems would be somehow dishonest and incomplete. Uh, everybody knows about the, the threats we face by climate change and other th- threats from species extinction and many other uh, perils that some of which we've brought on to ourselves. And our management of the planet is in trouble. Uh, so if I could contact aliens, I might say, can you help us? You know, and again, it's kind of like a prayer for help, but our planet desperately needs help. So I think I'd want to do one of two things, either do what we did in Voyager and try to present. We're very flawed and we make a lot of mistakes and we do a lot of terrible things, but we do some wonderful things, too. So here are some of our best and wonderful things. Remember us for that. That's what we did on Voyager. But the other approach to be to say, I'm a person in this world and this world is in trouble and uh, base your message coming from that perspective. Lastly, if your work on Voyager is due to float across the universe for a billion years or so, do you expect it to ever reach an alien life form and be interpreted? Nobody knows how abundant alien life forms are. Nobody knows how many spaceships there are. The more they are, the more likely they'll find Voyager one of the voyagers and there are two of them but i think anybody would say that it seems like it's a bottle in the ocean you know people throw bottles in the ocean and most of them are never found but sometimes they are occasionally they are found so you always hope but even if they're not found the fact that something that we made that has some of the best of our music and some of our most beautiful scenes on earth that that will survive, kind of bearing witness that we were here. Even if it's never found, that's almost more thrilling. The thousands and millions and billions and maybe even trillions of years from now, you know, something that came from Earth in the 20th century is still there. That's amazing. John, we can leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. We are looking back on the very best things that we've covered this year on the Fun Kids Science Weekly, learning all about space, learning all about insects, learning all about planet Earth. 
And we've enjoyed for the last few weeks hearing from our series Curious Kate. Curious Kate is a genius. Her name is Kate. And she's very curious. She's always asking the big questions about how things work, how electricity and energy is made. This week, we're looking all about smart grids, how they can use the internet to help run power supplies in your home. Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. Sounds like my brother Tom has just got in. He's going to make me change the TV channel. He just doesn't understand how great Britain's top ten mega funny dogs is. Oh no, Kate. You're not watching that rubbish again, are you? Let's switch over to the footy match. No way! Hey, don't touch that remote! Now look what you've done. It's turned off. I didn't do anything. Maybe there's a power cut. But I don't know who was number one yet. What's happened? Get the telly working again, please. I'll have a look. There may have been a power surge or a failure in the power supply. The electricity we use is created at a power station and is carried to us through something called the National Grid. You've seen those huge pylons strung across the countryside? Well, they bring the electricity to a substation near here and then it comes to our house through an underground cable. So why would there be a power surge? Well, maybe everyone in the country all switched on their tellies at the same time to see who won Britain's mega funny dogs. No idea why. There'll be loads of people using electricity at the same time. Exactly. Well, most of the time the grid can anticipate where there may be a surge, like on Saturday night when we were watching TV. The grid would have known when adverts were scheduled, and so when there was a break and millions got up to put the kettle on, it would have coped. But what if everyone turned on the kettle now? Well, the grid would probably still be able to cope. Okay, but what if one house was using loads of electricity, like watching the telly, boiling the kettle, with all the lights on, and another house was just using the microwave? Ah, well, the grid performs this kind of balancing act between supply and demand. It responds to fluctuations in demand by switching on additional power stations as needed. But there's quite a bit of wastage. Why? Well, electricity has to be consumed in real time. It's not possible to create electricity, store it and release it when needed. OK, batteries can store some electricity, but you can't store enough electricity to, say, power a town. To manage electricity more efficiently, we need to be a bit smarter. And that's what some engineers are designing. The smart grid. Cool. Is that like employing Hannah from my class? She's quite smart. Not Hannah, but the internet. The basic idea is to link different parts of the electrical grid, from our little home to the largest power station, using a network based on the internet. That sounds amazing. Yeah, this would allow devices in our homes to communicate with the power companies. So rather than a group of men estimating when surges may happen, the power station automatically knows what we've switched on and when, and also when it's gone off. This way, they'll have a more accurate view of what energy usage is needed, and we can all help to cut CO2 emissions. So even our electricity will be online? Yes, and it looks like the power's come back on, and just in time to see who the number one mega-funny dog is. Excellent! Oh, no. I'm off then. And the winner of Britain's top ten mega-funny dogs is... Rover! Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. How curious are you? Test your curiosity 
at www.generationgreen.co.uk forward slash curiosity. Right, let's check in with Dr. George McGavin now. We are looking back on some of the very best guests that we've have been able to chat to through 2022 here on the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, a few months ago, we spoke to Dr. George. He is an animal genius, a zoologist. He doesn't just know animals. He has discovered loads of brand new animals. And back in March, he came on the show to talk about all the insects that he's found time to explore and where he's found them. We're talking bugs with... Someone called one of the world's best insect experts. Dr. George McGavin has been all around the world from the tropical forests in Papua New Guinea, the caves of Thailand, the jungles of Belize. He's been all over the place looking for creepy crawlies. He's even had loads of species named after him. Let's find out more. He joins us. Dr. George McGavin, thank you for being there. My pleasure. Now, how did you decide that you wanted to dedicate so much of your life to looking at creepy crawlies? Well, you know, it started very young. I mean, I was always interested in the natural world. I mean, at school, I didn't really want to do anything else except be outside. Uh, I enjoyed English and other other things, but uh, but really, for me, biology was the main event. It wasn't until I did my degree at Edinburgh at um, Edinburgh when I did my degree in zoology that I realised that actually the majority of the world's animals are insects. So it's like if you don't understand the insects, you don't really understand much. What were the first insects that really made you fall in love with them where you realised, my word, there is so much to these (laughs) creatures? Well, I I suppose we, I mean, I I always found them interesting. Uh, But as I say in my biology degree at Edinburgh University, we went off on a field course to the west coast of Scotland and all my classmates were looking for badgers and owls and eagles and slow worms and not finding them because large animals are are quite hard to find really. But at our feet, there were literally hundreds of thousands of ants doing what I thought were remarkably interesting things. And I, I actually thought at that time, I thought, well, what, why aren't we finding out about these guys? Because it seems that, that these are the, are the main events. And in fact, you know, insects have been around on Earth for a very long time. They were the first animals on land. They were the first animals into the air. They predate vertebrates by a very, very long time. So we, of course, are new kids on the block. So I think everybody should find out a little bit more about Earth's inhabitants. And by that, I mean the majority of Earth's inhabitants, which are creepy crawlies. Well, let's do that now. How do we do that, George? So if if we're at home right now, what's the best way that we can find maybe a more interesting creature in our back garden than just the the humble ant? Well, there there is nothing more interesting than a humble ant, Dan, I guess I can tell you. But, uh, of course, we're, we're just coming out of winter. It's It's not been easy to find bugs and beetles, and and I include spiders as well because they are very interesting. Uh, But spring is just around the corner. The first early spring queen bees are emerging uh, and they will be feeding at some of the the very early spring flowers. So it's beginning to hot up. And this, for me, is the most exciting time of year. This is when the world is reborn, is renewed, 
uh, renewed and, and we can almost think of ourselves as having a second chance you know so <laughs> winter's passed so this year this year i think every kid with a with a passing interest in natural history should get out there with a hand lens a, a, a times 10 hand lens is one of the most important things you can buy and they're not expensive um i've had a, a couple over my time but so George, is, you've got, yeah you've got one there now just just run us through it yeah, so this, this is a, a 10 times hand lens. It's quite small. And this will open up a whole world of wonder to you. You can um, use it for lichens, for flowers, for fungi, for insects. And if you've got a little bit of wood in your fingernail or in your finger, you can use the, the hand lens to, to extract it. Uh, incredibly cheap. You can buy them for as little as five or six pounds if you want to go for the sort of top end model, perhaps about 15 or 20 pounds. So if you've got a birthday coming up, uh, I would definitely ask for a times 10 hand lens, which you can keep in your pocket and it will be with you for the rest of your life. Always ready to look for those bugs. It's a very tiny uh, magnifying glass is how it looks. Perfect. Something yes. you can put on a keychain, maybe a keychain for your mum and dad. Well, no, say, say this, George, we've got, uh, we've, We've got the hand lens. We've whipped yep. it out. What clues are we looking for that might show us there's a bug nearby? Well, obviously, hunting for bugs, you don't have to go charging about with an insect collecting net. Uh, visual examination is very good. You will see flowers. You will see insects on flowers. A handful of soil will reveal a lot more things. Lots of insects spend their time as a larva in the soil so get a sieve a small sieve and just get a handful of soil and just see what you can find in there one of my favorite things to do of course is a decaying log now this is one of the most important micro habitats on earth and after the storms we've had of course there are lots of big trees have fallen down and i hope people just leave them where they are obviously if they're on a road, it's not so good. You, you, know, you want to move it off the road or a path. But in, in forests and woodlands, leave the wood to rot down naturally. And it might come as a surprise to learn that one third of the rarest insects in Europe grow as larvae in decaying wood. So that's a massive resource which insects use. And peeling back a bit of bark or, or rolling over a log is just one of the most exciting things you can do on a walk. So when you go out for a walk with your parents or even on your own, don't go power walking, okay? Or if you want to get exercise, I suppose you do have to power walk. But, you know, go walk slowly. That's what I see. Keep your head down. Look at what's around you. Look under logs. I mean, if I turn over a log and it's got some great things under it, I can be there for half an hour, an hour. You know, all my friends have disappeared and <laughs> I'm still there with my hand lens because that is where, that's where the real action is, is uh, 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 taking place. I just, it's incredible that these things can be all around us and we don't really know what's going on. Mm. Well, listen, George, you've traveled all around the world, as I said, uh, looking for creatures and, and creepy crawlies. And I would imagine that you've seen some pretty amazing and 
interesting creatures that we could never even dream of. So just, if you can, take us through a few of the, um, the, 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 the stranger creatures that you've found in your hunts. Well, well it's true. I mean, I, I, I have been very fortunate in being able to go to rainforests particularly. And, of course, rainforests are the premier habitat on Earth. This is where you will find actually more than half of all species on Earth. Plus, you'll find things that have never been seen before. And I've seen everything from giant butterflies and moths the size of a soup plate to, you know, giant crickets. I've seen things that might lay eggs in your skin if you're not careful. <laughs> you know, I've seen spiders. I mean, some fantastic spiders. I've seen the world's biggest spider, which is about the size, if I hold my two hands out, it would sit sort of comfortably uh, across my hand there. I've seen some amazing scorpions. Uh, but actually, not everything that's big is interesting. There's some very interesting small insects. And I found a completely new species of spider once uh, on a trip. Um, you might think that's amazing, but actually it's not. We, we've only named about a million species on Earth, and we're pretty sure that there are somewhere in the region of 8 million undescribed, so unknown species. And they are mainly found in really hot, steamy jungles. And that is where you have to go. If you want to find a new species, that is your best, best place to go. But George, when you see this spider, how do you know mm. that's a new species? What do you have to do? Is there like a quick <laughs> yeah. information on, on your phone, like a little encyclopedia and you scan it? How does that work? Well, these days, there's a lot more information out there. And when I started, of course, it was very difficult that there was no Internet. There was no, you know, <laughs> you just had to find out the long winded way. Um but these days there are field guides and there are things on the internet. But for a new species, well, it's a tricky one. Um, when you find, say you find a new horse slide, Dan, uh, mm. on a trip somewhere and you thought, well, that, that looks a bit unusual. There are only 4,000 horse flies in the world. And you might be a bit of an expert. You might have seen a fair few of them. You might be a specialist in horseflies, and you might think, well, that's not like any of the ones I've ever seen. Well, you would have to compare what you collected with I mean, all sorts of other horseflies. So everything that had appeared in print, you might have to contact institutions and museums and compare your specimen to all known horseflies. So that's the way it goes. And then you might decide, yeah, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is undescribed. This is a new species of horsefly. You would then describe it in detail. It would have to appear in a journal, in print, and you would have to hand it a name. Uh, and at that point, once it appears in print, it is sort of accepted as a new species. Well, this particular spider I saw was so strange looking. It, it looked just like an ant. And I was pretty sure from my the, the stuff I've seen on these particular spiders that it was it was it was a new one I, I hadn't seen it in any book or any internet paper or you know museum collection mm. and I just thought I bet that's new and it, <laughs> it was in fact new but that's that's not really a surprise in a jungle because probably every fifth or sixth thing you find might well be um, undescribed. Wow. Well, it's been so amazing to just tap into your travels just a little bit. Uh, listen, 
I really enjoyed having you on. Dr. George McGavin, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, one thing that I've loved talking to you about is the James Webb Space Telescope. It launched way back at the start of 2022. This is the most powerful telescope we've ever made. It's right up in space now. You might remember they had to unfurl a big mirror that was the size of a football pitch that would help reflect light from the earliest stars ever made, stars that are millions and millions of light years away. We were looking back at the... They've been looking back at the very birth of our universe. And we wanted to find out more, so we went to our trusty friends at the National Space Centre here in the UK, chatting to Dara Patel all about the James Webb Space Telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope has sent back some of its first image of the oldest stars in the universe. We'll find out more right now with Dara Patel, who is a space expert at the National Space Centre. Dara, thank you for being there. Thank you for having me. So on the show, we've kind of covered what the James Webb Telescope is a little bit. We've followed it's being built, it being put in. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! In the sky, uh, just tell us a bit more about what it actually is, what it's made of and wh- why it's up there. Absolutely. So if anyone has ever been perhaps to a museum or looked in books and you've seen these incredible pictures of space, they've probably come from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, This is a telescope that has been placed in space and mostly looks at visible light, the light that we can see with our eyes. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope is like the next generation. So this is the next telescope after Hubble. It's over twice as large. So Hubble's mirror, I believe, was about two and a half metres wide. The James Webb Space Telescope's mirror is about six and a half metres wide. So it collects so much more light. And the difference is it is not collecting visible light, the light that we see with our eyes. It actually has four instruments on board and they detect infrared light. So this light is invisible to our eyes, but it allows us to see further or I guess deeper into the universe. And it's really far away, isn't it? Is, is it keep? Is it going to keep on travelling or is it kind of locked in place now? So it's reached its home, its destination, where it will continue orbiting. And it's about one and a half million kilometres from the Earth. Um, so it's pretty distant, but that's important because I mentioned that it collects infrared light. And what we need to do is keep that telescope cool Uh, so that it's not detecting its own heat or its own infrared light. So it's got to be kept cool. So it has to be away from the sun and away from the earth that might actually heat it up. And we've had some big developments in the last few weeks. It sent back pictures. How big a deal is this for you? So I think if you talk to any scientist or astronomer, they will be, you know, laughing with ecstasy. They will be so astonished by what we've had back. And part of that is because 
these are just the first images from web and yet they show us already so much more detail and have allowed us to see things which we have never seen before. I've spotted the pictures myself and the magnification is fantastic. There are all these bright lights. How far back are we looking in that picture, Dara? So I think the image that you're talking about is the image where there's this bright glow at the centre, which is a galaxy cluster. And then there are all these other dots of light around it. And each of those is a distant galaxy. And by looking in the infrared, the Webb telescope is actually able to see even further, even more distant galaxies than the Hubble did. So we're looking at the first sorts of galaxies that were forming, maybe just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So we're talking about galaxies over 13 billion years old. And how much is this likely to change what we know about the universe? Like, it's all well and good having a look at these old galaxies. Are we just doing it to have a nice picture or are we trying to learn something? Well, having a nice picture, I guess, is a perk, but actually we can learn so much from these images. One of the biggest things that we are trying to learn about is galaxy evolution. And we don't quite know how the first galaxies formed, how they've evolved, why we've got the different shapes of galaxies and the different sizes. And so if we can look back with the Webb telescope to some of these very early galaxies, we can start probing and learning about how these galaxies formed and then how they evolved. And perhaps that will help us understand what we might see in the future. Now, if you, I'm looking at the picture right now and there are loads and loads and loads of galaxies in there, but they look so small. Like how far away are they from the Webb telescope do we know? And also... How far away from the other galaxies is each one? Like, are we talking millions and millions of miles, even though on the picture it looks like millimetres? So to give you an idea, what we're talking on astronomical scales, we use a unit called a light year. Now, light travels at 300,000 kilometres a second. So imagine how far light can travel in an entire year. That's what one light year is. Now. The Milky Way's closest galaxy is two and a half million light years away. That means it took light two and a half million years to get to us. And that's our closest galaxy. So if we imagine, you know, galaxies are dotted all around the universe. Some of them are as close as two and a half million light years, which is still pretty far. And others will be even further away. So these galaxies look very small in that picture because we are, we're looking at incredibly distant galaxies, but there's so many of them because we're looking uh, at a part of the sky. And you know what's fascinating is there's so many galaxies in this picture, but the part of the sky that we're looking at is literally the size of a sand of grain held out at arm's length. So it's a tiny patch of the sky, but yet there are so many galaxies within it. Wow. Uh, so it's taken the picture. It's gone up there. What, what's it doing now? Is, is it done its job? Or, or, all those oh, millions no. of pounds spent? Is it going to come back to Earth? So it's not going to come back to the Earth. It will stay where it is. And scientists predict that it's got about a 20-year life. Uh, and that's because its launch and all the procedures went incredibly well, that it was able to conserve some fuel. 
And even after giving us those images, Web has been working away. And every week, every few weeks, we'll see new data, new images continue to be released. So this is only the beginning. Last question. Are there any scientists, perhaps in NASA, that are getting almost a live feed from web. So we're seeing the pictures that are released, but are they getting almost like a webcam, constant pictures going over and over and over again? Or is it is the telescope set to take pictures every few weeks? So the telescope actually collects data and that data needs to be interpreted to create images. Like I mentioned, infrared light, we cannot see with our eyes. And so we have to take this data and assign it colors that we can see. So it's kind of like doing a color by number. Now the web telescope is continuously taking data, but that data is downloaded maybe a couple of times a day. Um, So the scientists are getting the data frequently enough, but it actually takes a bit of time to process what we're seeing to actually turn it into meaningful images or graphs or spectra that we can actually interpret. Wow, that's amazing. Well, listen, Dara Patel, space expert, if you are ever around the Midlands, go out of your way to go to the National Space Centre. It's in Leicester. It is phenomenal. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks. Every week on the Fun Kids Science Weekly, we love hearing from the brilliant guests. I love answering your questions, discovering all these deadly things around the universe in dangerous stands. Also, we really like hearing smaller series that we have. Now, you can find them all on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts. One of the best ones that we learned from is Deep Space High. It's where we take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system to catch up with Professor Pulsar and all of the students lucky enough to go to a school in space. This week we're hearing from Pulsar and Sam looking at what gravity does here on Earth, what it's responsible for and how it may be a lot more than you think. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Oh, I've dropped my ice cream. You haven't just dropped your ice cream. You've just witnessed one of the strangest and most powerful universal forces in action right there. Let me guess. Gravity. Yeah, I know. You drop things, they hit the ground. That's gravity. Not as interesting as ice cream, really. Hey, hold up. There's far more to gravity than that. Check out the sea. What do you think makes the waves move? Um, the wind? No, gravity. And gravity has a hand in our weather too, you know. Whoa! Gravity makes the waves and the wind. Gravity's been around since the start of the universe. It pulled the atoms together to make stars and planets and keeps them in their orbits. It keeps the atmosphere close to the surface and your feet on the ground. And it's the gravitational pull of the moon's orbit around the Earth that creates the waves in our oceans. Yeah, gravity pulled my ice cream on the ground too. Gutted. Here's a crazy thing though. If you drop that ice cream in a spacecraft far away from the Earth's gravitational field, you might have had time to catch it. Yeah, I've seen that on telly. Things floating around really slowly. 
Now, you'll find gravitate wherever there are objects like planets, but it can be stronger or weaker depending on where you are, as well as from things like how big the objects are and how much mass they have. Take you, for example. How heavy are you? I don't know, about 30 kilograms? On Mercury and Mars, you'd only weigh about 11 kilograms, just a third of what you weigh on Earth. Jupiter would be a different matter. It's much bigger, and bigger objects have a greater gravitational pull. You'd weigh twice what you do on Earth. And if you think that's bad, if you stood on the sun, you'd weigh over 800 kilograms. That's heavier than a car. We'd be pretty tricky to get around if I was that heavy. I'd need a forklift truck just to lift my feet. How strong gravity is will affect the way life develops on other planets. We don't know for sure, but it's likely that life on planets with very strong gravity would be found very close to the ground. They might have to be very tough and strong to move around. So if we know how big a planet is, how much mass it has, and what other objects it's close to, we might be able to work out quite a bit about it. That's right, including whether you'd be able to catch a falling ice cream in time. Well, that's the kind of thing I'd want to know before I went. Hey, did you hear about the astronaut who was reading a book in space? Because there was no gravity, it was impossible to put down. Let's finish off this week's look at the very best guests that we've had through 2022 on the Fun Kids Science Weekly with one of our favourites, an absolute legend. We've been lucky enough to chat to Steve Backshaw a few times. He is an animal expert. You might know him off the telly from his brilliant show, Deadly 60. If you're not in the UK, you can watch loads of fantastic clips online where he travels all around the world looking at some of the most deadly beasts in the world. He is a dude very much after our own heart here on the show. And earlier this year... He came on to talk all about his brand new live show and to tell us about some of the scariest moments that he's had with creatures. So excited. We've done this show for about four years and it is one of the biggest guests we've ever had. One of the world's greatest adventurers. Steve Backshaw has explored jungles all around the world. He's travelled the globe many times, come face to face with some of the most deadly creatures in his show, Deadly 60, and he's off on tour. All around the UK, it's called Steve Backshaw's Ocean. Steve, thank you for being there. Hello, Dan. Really nice to speak to you. Now, why focus an entire live show on the ocean? Normally you're on telly. Why are you bringing it to theatres? That's, that's a really good question. Uh, so I've done tours in the past that I've themed around specific journeys. I've done them around particular expeditions. Um, I've done them around the wildlife of Australia, the wildlife of the Arctic and the Antarctic. But this time around, I wanted to focus on the ocean for, for a variety of different reasons. First of all, because I think the creatures that live in the ocean, we may think we know them, but we very rarely do anything like as much as we may like to think. You know, even simply the uh, the fish that live in our seas around the UK that we may consider to be common, certainly the sharks that we have in our seas, it's entirely likely that no one's ever seen them breed. No one's ever seen them mate or give birth to their young. It's something as simple as that, which is, you know, the most basic part of life histories could well be completely unknown to us. You know, our own basking shark 
people used to think that they hibernated in the winter. Nobody knows where they go. No one, no one's seen them mate. No one's seen them give birth to their young. And I find that really exciting. We have at least 20,000 different species of fish in our, in our seas, and yet new ones are being discovered all the time. You know, it's often said it's a cliche that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about our deep seas, but it's not even close. We know far more about the surface of the moon than we do our, our deep oceans. And so I, I thought that this would be a, a good theme. Obviously, bringing the seas to the stage is a significant challenge. <laughs> this is what I was thinking, talking about the surface of the moon and what we know about the ocean. There's some ridiculous fact that we know almost five percent of what's in our seas how are we exploring that on stage with you is it about what we know or is it trying to figure out maybe the creatures that we don't have any idea about just yet it's a bit of all of those things so i very much focused on on the animals first because i know that you know first and foremost i think it's a stage show so people need to be entertained i don't want to be hammering home you know loads of stuff about food webs and ecosystems and not too much stuff about conservation and doom and gloom i, I want people to be excited and entertained by by getting a, a more intimate glance at some of the ocean's giants and some of the ocean's teeny tiny little things so it's going to be very much focused around around species, around particular iconic species, a few that people will possibly, hopefully, never have heard of. And I'm going to try and bring them to life, much as I would love to flood every single theatre and give everyone a mask and snorkel. That wasn't allowed. So instead, what I'm going to do is be bringing along life-size replicas of some of the largest animals ever known to have lived on our planet. There will be live science experiments on stage with a very, very high chance, if not a probability of those going wrong, leaving me with egg on my face. There will be outtakes and bloopers and questions and interactivity. There's going to be a giant screen with natural history footage. I seriously think that no one is going to leave the theatre, including me, that hasn't learned something and at the same time, hopefully been, been entertained. Let me take you right back to the start, if that's all right, Steve, because you, you go to school, you finish your studies. I think you have a degree in English. Is, is that right? English, maybe with theatre. Why knock that all on the head? Why leave it all and become an explorer and actually make it work? Why do you make that choice? It's a, it, this is a super question. It's a really good question. It's probably more of a question why I ended up doing English the first time round. <laughs> And it was just simply that that was that was kind of what I was good at. I am not a natural scientist. I struggled with maths at school. I still struggle with statistics. I found science really hard and I found English and humanities really easy. And I just took the easy route. And it wasn't until after them when I left and I kind of went, but actually the thing I love most in the world is animals. So I should have learned about animals. I should have studied biology and I had to go back and do my A-levels again and do my whole university again and then do my master's. And, you know, and now I'm an honorary lecturer in, in marine biology. I still wouldn't classify myself as being a scientist because I still find it really, really difficult. And, you know, it's taken the best part of 20 years for me to get to this stage where I actually have all the right letters after my name. And, you know, I, I honestly <laughs> am that guy and there's probably a little bit of imposter syndrome even now because I know how difficult I find it. 
let's just uh, take you back to some of the creatures and some of the expeditions you, you've done in your years of exploring. Uh, you've come face to face with so many different creatures, especially in the programme Deadly 60. What was the one animal you were most terrified by when you thought this might have been a bad choice? So very much the ethos of Deadly has always been so much so that we put it in the title of every single program that this is about animals that are deadly in their own world. So deadly to their prey, not dangerous to us. And that's that's critical because the last thing I want to do is is ever be, you know, demonizing any animals. That That's the antithesis of, of what we're about. And that's allowed us to feature everything from blue whales and basking sharks to, to dragonflies and kestrels. And I think that how they interact with their prey is, is what's really fascinating. And actually, despite the fact that I've been doing Deadly since 2007, I've had a couple of scratches, but nothing serious. And I think that that more than anything kind of is testament to the fact that animals would in almost every single situation rather move away from you than, than go for you. I can count on one hand the amount of times that I've felt genuinely threatened by animals. And, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years now. Just give us some of those animals that you felt a little bit threatened by. So um, hippos are, are the one that most people, particularly in Africa, will, um, will kind of always have a little bit of a shudder when they hear about it. And, you know, that's because they're, they're big, they're fast, they're grumpy, they're territorial, uh, and they're more than anything unpredictable. Um, and there's been, there's been a few moments where we've kind of like, you know, bitten our fingernails down to the quick with hippos. But, but at the same time, you know, in the exact same place where we've been filming those hippos, I swam on the bottom of the Okavango Delta alongside four metre long Nile crocodiles without anyone ever getting touched or hurt. So, you know, you, you can see that actually the, 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 the danger, the threat, the fear of animals is, is always, it's what everyone focuses on, but I think it's, I think that's wrong. It's, you know, wild animals are just not interested enough in us. And if they are, it's because we pose a threat to them. Well, how about this? It's a question from Caleb who listens to the show, who wants to know what's the deadliest ocean animal you've ever come into contact with? So I have placed at the very top of my, I took the unprecedented step on the last series of deadly of declaring my most deadly animal in the world. And it's the orca. And I think that an animal that can coordinate its actions with all of the other members of wow. its, of its pod or its tribe that has different languages, different methods of, of communication that can sweep seals off ice flows down in Antarctica or beach itself on the sands of Patagonia to pull fur seals into the water that can feed on herring by slapping them with its tail and incapacitating them that can leap clear out of the water to, to land on and, and drown a gray whale carp. They have such an array of different ways of hunting and they are probably other than us, the only animal that will and does take on fully grown great white sharks. The orca, I mean, even its name, both forms of its name. Oh, orca and the killer whale is something to be terrified by. Uh, listen, we're coming out of the back of a couple of years of different lockdowns and maybe you haven't been able to explore the planet as much as you'd like. How good are you at being an adventurer in your own back garden? I, I saw pictures online from you the other day of you with your family scaling mountains. Do you still explore every day when you can? 
Yeah, I, I think that it's very important for us to realize that adventure always begins at home and it always begins in your own backyard. There is not a single mountaineer whose first mountain was Everest. There is not a single adventurer who first went source to sea down the Amazon before you know having a little paddle on the Thames first. We learn our skills right in our own place, at home, in our own back garden. And that's much more prescient to me right now because I'm a dad to twins at two and Logan at three. And therefore we're thinking every day of how we introduce them to the wild world, how we get them interested in nature. And that's the key to us. It's those first steps, those, those kind of early experiences that are going to be formative and hopefully drive them towards something like we do for a living. But even if they don't, you know, just the fact that they will have had those experiences with nature, I think will be really positive and, and help them to be able to become you know fully formed little humans well talking about those key skills I, I guess lastly for someone listening who perhaps really wants to follow in your footsteps wants to travel the world wants to come face to face with these animals what are the key skills that someone maybe needs to learn or needs to grow to, to give themselves the best chance of, of dealing with being an explorer don't be afraid of failing Failing is not only a part of life, but it's the most important part of development. Seeing your failures, recognizing them and learning from them is how great people get to be great. Never look back at your failures and be paralyzed by them. Don't get too tangled up in, in regret. In fact, embrace your failures recognize them as things that are going to make you a better person and use them as a, a means towards whatever it is that your goal is going to be in life. Amazing. Well, listen, the, the tour, Steve Backshaw's Ocean, it's going all around the UK. Good luck with it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Steve. You are so, so welcome. Lovely to speak to you, Dan. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly, looking back on some of the very best things that we've done throughout 2022 here on the show. I'm very excited for 2023. Make sure you are following us so you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed any of the guests that we've chatted to today or any of the series we've heard, you can always catch up on them again on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. And remember, if you're a Fun Kids Podcast Plus subscriber, you'll get it ad-free and unlock loads more bonus content too. Find out more about Podcasts Plus at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. All right. Um, it's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of like um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? It's a warm spring day in late March. And ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't. And also like how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. 
find out, join us on the Conversations Curious Kids wherever you get your podcasts.